0: Church family, it is good to be with you today, and let me ask you to take your Bibles, please, and turn to Daniel chapter 3, Daniel chapter 3, looking at verses 19 through 30, and if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 740, that's page 740, and as always, I'll begin in a word of prayer, and then we will explore the text together. All right, let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you so much for this day you've given to us. Every Sunday that we can gather as a church family and worship and learn and fellowship together is precious to us. Lord, we pray that as we now turn to your word and engage in, in concentrated thought about its contents and as we try to make application to our own lives, would your spirit be among us? Would would he press these truths upon our hearts? Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in the time spent in your word today and in every day of our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I've entitled today's message, When a Government Thinks It Is God, Part Two. But it's been a full month since I delivered Part One. So allow me to spend a few moments in review. You'll recall that as Daniel chapter 3 opens, we find King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon erecting a monument to his own greatness. And this monument is enormous. It is 90 feet tall. It is 9 feet wide. It's overlaid with gold. Nebuchadnezzar issues a decree stating that every citizen of his kingdom must bow before this monument and worship it, worship him as a god. We noted in part one of this mini-series that this is how godless governments will operate. It's not enough for them that they have authority over you. They also want your heart. They want to be your God. And they will not rest until they have achieved this goal. And so here we find Nebuchadnezzar, a godless king, issuing an order that all people bow before his image. And then he issues a terrible threat just to make sure everyone complies. The thread says that anyone who will not bow before the monument will be thrown into a burning, fiery furnace. And this undoubtedly refers to one of those many industrial kilns that were found in ancient Babylon. These kilns were built like giant mounds. They were hollowed out on the inside. There was an opening at the bottom where you would add the fuel. There was an opening at the top so the smoke could escape. And these things were used to bake the bricks used in construction projects, also to liquefy metal. One of these industrial kilns would have been used to melt down the gold used in the monument that Nebuchadnezzar had built. So essentially, Nebuchadnezzar was saying this, everyone in my kingdom must bow before my monument or I will throw you into the furnace that forged it. That was the threat. The decree forced every citizen of Babylon to make a choice. Whom would they worship? Would they worship the God of heaven, or would they worship King Nebuchadnezzar? They could not worship both at the same time. Well, as we continue through Daniel 3, we saw that the multitudes chose to worship Nebuchadnezzar, and en masse, they all prostrated themselves before his image. Why would they do such a thing? Well, they did it because the fear of death is a very powerful motivator. Fear of death will cause people to give up long-held principles. It'll cause them to lie, cheat, steal, commit atrocities against others. It'll even cause them to bow before a false god. And that's what many of them did on this day. Fell on their faces before an object of wood and metal because they feared King Nebuchadnezzar more than they feared the living God. But in verse 8, we saw that not everyone complied. Out of this vast crowd of worshipers, there were three young men who did not bow. They were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, friends of Daniel. They refused to bow, not because they hated Nebuchadnezzar. They respected him. He was their king. But they refused to bow because they loved the God of heaven. And they would not sacrifice faithfulness to him, not even to keep the king's order, not even to spare their own lives. And friends, this was the right decision for them to make. Because there is only one true and living God. There is one infinite and eternal spirit in whom we all find our source, support, and end. There's only one being in existence that is worthy of our absolute, unquestioning worship and obedience. And that's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, we ought never to give God's place to another especially not to a human government. And so these three men did the right thing. They refused to worship a man. They reserved their worship for God. But of course, this enraged King Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, how dare these three young men defy an order from the most powerful man in the world? How dare they do this to him? This takes us to verses 19 through 30, the conclusion of the story. The first lesson we learn from this section is the following, that godless governments will carry out their threats against the righteous. They will carry out their threats. Allow me to read verses 19 through 21. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. This is right after the three men have refused to comply filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. So once, Nebuchadnezzar had really valued these three men. I mean, he had appointed them to very prominent places in his kingdom. They served in his own palace. But the moment they refused his order, it says, his face changed. Now he hates them. He hates them now more than he loved them before. And in his rage, he ordered that that industrial kiln be heated seven times hotter than usual. That was just Nebuchadnezzar's way of saying, make this furnace as hot as it is capable of getting. Why would he do that? Well, he wanted the, the fires to rage in that kiln to match the fires raging in his own heart. And because he wanted to try and inflict terror in these three men and in all the witnesses there, look at that raging inferno and be afraid of Nebuchadnezzar. He orders that the three young men be thrown into the furnace. Look at verse t- verses 20 and 21. He ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. And then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Okay, so we see here Nebuchadnezzar was not bluffing. He wanted absolute, unquestioning worship and obedience From every citizen, no exceptions. He was not going to accept a sincere religious objection to his order. Friends, if you ever find yourself at odds with your government over a matter of conscience, don't expect them to be merciful to you. Don't expect them to understand your sincere matter of conscience. No, they will want your absolute obedience. They will demand conformity to all of their laws, just and unjust. And so, my friends, you must be prepared to pay the price for faithfulness. You are called to be faithful to God. Sometimes that will come at a cost. It certainly did for these three men. We turn now to verses 22 and 23. Look what happens. It says, because the king's order was urgent and the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. So remember, these industrial kilns were, were built like giant mounds. So the, the soldiers of Nebuchadnezzar have, have bound the young men and they have carried them up to the top of the mound, and they were going to throw them through that top opening into the kiln. But they had stoked the fire inside of that kiln so hot that when the soldiers approached the opening at the top, they burned alive. That escape hatch for the smoke was now raging with flame, and it caught the soldiers And then, of course, the three Jewish men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were thrown right into the inferno, dropped to the bottom of the kiln. Let's take a step back for a moment and think about what has happened to these three men. Not many years prior, they had just been living their lives in Israel, remember? Just faithful servants of God through no fault of their own, their nation was overrun by the Babylonian war machine. And the Babylonians leveled their homeland, and they took these three men captive, along with Daniel and others. They were kidnapped, taken against their will to the capital of the Babylonian empire. And there they were forced to submit to a training program to make them fit for use in Nebuchadnezzar's palace. For three years, they endured this training program. And finally, they were released. They were allowed to serve in Nebuchadnezzar's palace. Now, through no fault of their own, they are living under a tyrant who knows not the true and living God. And finally, he issues an unjust order that they must bow before him in worship. And it's an order they cannot follow, not if they're going to be God's people because they refuse to comply with this unjust decree, they are sentenced to death by burning. These men are still in their early 20s. Their life is going to be cut short just because of faithfulness to God. Do you know the amazing thing about the whole story to me? It's that it appears these three men were okay with all of this. That's the amazing thing. See, as we read through the story in Daniel chapter 3, we find no crying, no wailing, no clawing at the ground as they're being pulled up that that furnace. They're not begging. They're not fighting against the soldiers as they're being bound hand and foot. There are no pleas for mercy. There are no sudden changes of mind. There are no counter threats. There's no raging against Nebuchadnezzar and his soldiers. We don't find any of that in the narrative. Instead, we just find the calm confidence of young men who know that they are in the right and who have entrusted their souls to the care of God. See, these three men really did believe in God. They really did. And friends, when you really know the God of heaven and you believe in him, this is the difference that it makes in your life. These men have not succumbed to the fear of death. They are able to to accept these dark turns of providence with a calm confidence because they know God. And these men also understood that while God does have the power to rescue his people from persecution, usually, for his own good reasons, he allows his people to endure the persecution instead. He allows his children to go through their great ordeals. And they understood that God does this not because he is a cruel being, but because he's a God who knows how to use the evil actions of wicked men to accomplish his greater purposes. And friends, if you ever have any doubts about that, just look back to the cross of Christ. Was there ever a greater moral outrage in history than that? The sinless Son of God condemned to death by crucifixion. And yet God was able to use that most heinous of acts to accomplish the greatest good the world has ever known. Through Christ's death, atonement for our sin was made. Our salvation was secured. See, God knows how to take the worst of all acts and to turn it into the greatest of all goods. God did not spare His own Son from suffering and death. He will not always spare us from suffering and death. When God allows it, though, it's because He's a good God and He has good purposes in mind. These three men understood it. And for them, if their deaths could further God's good purposes in the world more than their lives, they were willing to accept that. You see, these men were living for a cause far bigger than themselves. And that's why there was no wailing or pleading or raging against their captors. There was just the calm acceptance of his providence and a determination that they would face their end with courage and conviction. My friends, what we're witnessing in this passage is an approach to life that all of God's people are called to embody every single one of us. An approach to life that says, the goal is not a long life. The goal is a faithful life. It's an approach to life that says, if God, for his own reasons, wants to allow me to go through persecution and even a so-called premature end, because that will accomplish his purposes better, than giving me a hundred years and a life of ease, then I accept that. I accept God's purposes for me. You see, a faithful life will make a far bigger impact for eternity than a long life, if that long life is not faithful. Faithful. So the goal is faithfulness, not longevity. But, friends, how do we cultivate that kind of an approach to life? Because that's a a radical way to look at your life, isn't it? Well, let me suggest these steps. First of all, I think we all need to build our biography of God. You see, if your God is very small, He's not going to inspire this kind of commitment. He's just not. The, the rulers of this world are going to be very intimidating to you because you don't see how God could, could help. You don't see how God could, could stand against such a figure. If your God is small, you will not be able to live this way. But if you have a big God, then you will live with this kind of commitment. How do we develop a, a big view of God? Well, we do it by being deep in the Scriptures. Just see God on every page. See how God is the hero of every story of Scripture. You need to read the Scriptures and see God in all of His magnificent glory. You need to see Him in His majestic holiness. See how He is working all things for the good of those who love Him. And if you have a God like this, it will be much easier to walk through life with a calm confidence, the kind that you see embodied in these three young men. But then, friends, beyond having an accurate biography of God, you also need full assurance of your status before God. Because, you see, if you have a really big God, but you don't know if you're rightly related to Him, that's not going to give you any confidence. You have to know God as He truly is, but then you also have to know that you are His child, that everything is okay between you and God that all all sins have been wiped away, that you're standing with Him is what it should be. To know that even if your life should be cut short, it's okay because immediately you'll be in His presence and He'll receive you with open arms. You need to know that your state before God is what it needs to be. And then third, you need to practice the spiritual disciplines. Things like a consistent prayer life and Regular participation in a church family, accepting the the fellowship and the support and the accountability that comes from your church. You see, by practicing the spiritual disciplines, we intensify our communion with God and we increase our moral resolve. It's worked out in our study of God's Word, in our communion with Him through prayer, and in the context of the public gatherings of God's people. We need a big God. We need assurance that we are in a saving relationship with God. We need a life that is increasingly growing in its communion with God. And then fourthly, and this is a hard one, we need to let go of our own agenda for our lives. Now don't misunderstand here, it's okay for us to make plans for the future. In fact, we should make plans. You know, those of you who are graduating from high school right now, you're making big plans. I know you are, and that's great. You're thinking about your, your future career, you're thinking about who you should marry, you're thinking about kids, and you're, you're thinking about where you're going to live, and just all of these things you're starting to, to map out. You're supposed to do that. All of us at every stage of life should be planning for our next steps, but... Every one of us also has to realize that the plans we make, they are all tentative, and we have to give God the right to change our plans at any time that he sees fit. Like Pastor Scott said last week, we need to let God be God in our lives see, God could move your life in a different direction than the one you had planned. He could give you a bigger public platform than you had envisioned, or he might give you a, a smaller one. He might give you more riches than you would imagine, or he might give you poverty. He might give you a life of ease, or he might give you a life of great hardship. We don't know what God's plans are for our lives, so we've always got to hold our own plans tentatively. Let God change our plans as he sees fit. Just think of these three young men once more. All three of these were smart, young, ambitious men. We know that because King Nebuchadnezzar said he only wanted the best and the brightest from Israel serving in his palace. So Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, these were the smartest, the most ambitious, the best looking, the strongest men that you could find in Israel. I'm sure they had lots of plans for their lives. And I'm sure none of it involved being kidnapped by Babylonians and sent off to a strange land and then being sentenced to death in their early 20s and being burned alive. But they were willing to submit their plans to God's. They were prepared to say, if this is God's plan for our lives, instead of the ones that we had made, so be it. God's plans are always best. We may not see that right now, May not feel that way, but we know it in our heads. God's plans are best. And if He's going to to ordain that we should walk through a season of great hardship, then it must be because there's a, a glorious purpose that He's going to accomplish through it. Somehow He's going to make His name greater through this. Somehow more people are going to come to a saving knowledge of Him through this. Somehow other believers will be strengthened and made more courageous themselves. This he's going to do something great here. This takes us to the second lesson of today's passage. First, we saw that godless governments will carry out their threats. But then the second lesson is this: that God knows how to glorify Himself in the midst of tyrants. In fact, God can even use the godless actions of tyrants in order to assert his own supremacy. He can use tyrants as his tools for accomplishing his purposes. Look now verses 24 and 25. The text says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Remember this this furnace or this kiln, it was like a mound. The three young men had been dropped in through the top hole down, and there was another opening at the bottom. And apparently, Nebuchadnezzar was such a sick and twisted man that he wanted to watch through the bottom opening so he could see these young men burned to death. He wanted to see them pay for their disobedience. So he is watching through that little portal. He sees the bodies of the three men fall into the fire. But then he watches as they stand up. And they start walking around inside and the fires are raging, but the young men are not being consumed. You remember back in Exodus, the burning bush, where Moses sees this bush and it's on fire and it's burning and it's burning, but it's never being consumed. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is seeing inside the furnace. Men burning, but not being consumed. He says, what is going on here? And then he looks a little closer and he sees a fourth man in the furnace, walking. And he says, wait a minute, we didn't throw four men in there, we threw three men. And he says, and that fourth man, he looks different than the other three. He says, he looks like a son of the gods. That means this fourth one, he looks like a divine being. Who is this fourth man? Well, Jewish commentators say the fourth man was an angel of the Lord. Christian commentators say this fourth person was the angel of the Lord. In other words, the Son of God himself. The angel of the Lord is an Old Testament title for Christ, and surely this is correct, which is why the King James Bible actually translates it, the fourth is like the Son of God. So the Son of God, who would one day come and die for the sins of the world, now came and joined these would-be martyrs in the fiery furnace, and he did it to let the whole world know that God was on their side, not Nebuchadnezzar's side. He was there to let everyone know that God had always been with them, even through this great ordeal, and that God would never leave them or forsake them. Christian friend, even in the most difficult moments of your life, know that God is with you. And the Son of God is with you. And God the Holy Spirit is with you. The triune God never, ever leaves or forsakes His people. Now, God may not appear to you quite as dramatically as he did for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in those times of of hardship. He's probably, almost certainly, not going to appear in a physical manifestation showcasing his glory before your eyes. But whether he does that or not, know that he is with you. His own Holy Spirit indwells you. He surrounds you with his love. His eyes are always on his children. There's never a time in your life, whether it's a good time or a bad time, that God is not there going through it with you. Where St. Patrick of Ireland said many, many centuries ago, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ within me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me. Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise. He is always with his people. Now, in the case of these three young men, the Son of God came for the purpose of providing a dramatic deliverance. So from inside the furnace, he loosened their bonds... He spared them from death because in this particular instance, the supremacy of God over all things would be most brilliantly displayed through the men's rescue from death rather than through their endurance of death. But you understand God doesn't always work this way. Most of the time God doesn't. Most of the time, God showcases His supremacy over all things and He He showcases His glory by walking with His people through the valley of the shadow of death, seeing them through it and testifying to the world of His greatness as a person walks through death still praising His name. On this one occasion, He came and He rescued And we look at verses 26 through 30. We find the results of God's great rescue. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Now notice that Nebuchadnezzar's view of God has already been transformed. Earlier in the chapter, when Nebuchadnezzar was giving these three young men one last chance to comply, do you remember what he said? He said, Who is there To stand up against me. Well, now he gets it, right? It's starting to to sink in. (laughs) And he says, You three men come out, servants of the most high God. He says, There is a God above me. It's the God that these men worship. God has established his supremacy over all things through the deliverance of these three men. Nebuchadnezzar gets it. And so the three men came out of the fire. Verse 27, now the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. No smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be, or praise be, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Now, friends, right in those verses, we have the point of the whole chapter. This is why the story of Daniel chapter 3 was put into the book. Here we find Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world, but he now realizes he is nothing compared to the true and living God. Nebuchadnezzar may have had some authority over a furnace, but God has authority over the heavens and the earth. God has power over life and death, over fire and water. He alone is worthy of worship and obedience. Nebuchadnezzar got it finally. This is here in our Bible so that we would get it, so that it would sink into our heads that there is nobody like our God. That there is nobody that we should fear Save our God. There's nobody who can deliver like our God. And then finally, verse 30, the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So from social pariahs to the nation's outstanding citizens all in one afternoon. I mean, these three men must have had whiplash by the end of this day. Can you imagine But if I could offer some final words of application here, first of all, if I could address those in our world with great power. Kings of the world, hear this. There is a God in heaven whose power exceeds your wildest imagination. And this God sees all, and he knows all, and one day we will all stand before his judgment seat. And so, rulers of the world, do not forget this. Do not try to take God's place in your citizens' lives. Do not pass laws that are against the laws of this God. Do not think of yourself as a God. Do not demand unquestioning obedience and worship from your subjects. Instead, bow before the true God and do His will. Listen to the words of Psalm 2. It says, O kings, be wise and be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son of God, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. And then for the rest of us, see that the God of heaven is King of kings and Lord of lords. And that he holds the whole world in his hands. See that he alone deserves our absolute and total obedience. And see that this God is always with his people in times of of ease and in times of hardship. He is always with his people. And see that you can trust this God. That he may yet deliver you from your circumstances or he may see you through them with the grace that you need right to the very end. In those times when you're tempted to give in to fear, remember Daniel chapter 3. Remember that you need fear no one but this God. Remember to let God be God over your life. And then just see what he can do. See what God can do. Friends, let's close this morning in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for this remarkable chapter from the book of Daniel. We thank you for the example of three young men who had the courage to stand even though they were the only ones in their entire society, even though the entire population was against them, the the government was sentencing them to death for it. Thank you for giving us an example of these courageous men. Help us to be like them To be so committed to you, to so fear you, to have such strong moral resolve, such firm conviction about what is right, that we could stand no matter what forces would be arrayed against us. But then, Lord, we also see that they are not the ultimate heroes of this chapter. You are. You're the one who led them into this confrontation. You're the one that saw them through it. You're the the name that is praised at the end of the story. So help us to live with a Godward focus. Help us to to seek to to trust in you as our ultimate hero. Help us to instill uh, a sense of your greatness in all those that we encounter. Help us not to direct attention toward us, not to seek to make ourselves great, to set ourselves up as the examples, but instead to set you up to help people see your greatness and your supremacy. Lord, that is the anchor that every person needs. That is what will give them courage in the face of danger. That's what will give them calm in the face of tumultuous times. So, Lord, help us to have that kind of a witness. Please help anyone here today who is uncertain of their relation to you. Lord, help them to settle that matter today, to draw near to you in faith and repentance, to commit themselves to taking that next spiritual step. Help them, Lord, to get grounded in your word so they are ready to face whatever days are coming. And we pray all of these things in the name of your great Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.